we're grateful this morning of the, the ways that you have taken your life and you have spoken into our souls and that you have regenerated us and you have caused us to be wakened by your spirit. And you're at work even now in each of our lives, taking that truth of what you've done, growing us in it, planting us deep in this reality of what you have done and what you're accomplishing in and through us. Father, this morning, would you continue to teach and plant us in the truth of, of, of this gospel? Uh, bless this time. Give us ears to hear what you have to say. Uh, use your spirit and the community of your people here to continue to, to cause that to go deep into our lives so that we would leave this morning not just having sung songs or heard some words or said some words, but having met indeed with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you want to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, Galatians 3, um, a couple weeks ago, we spent a couple of weeks looking at this passage. Uh, chapter 3 I've started at the be beginning of the chapter and kind of working my way through. This is my version of a series, third part of a series. And then over the next few weeks, there'll be some others that, that preach. But uh, I'm going to get as far as we can, hopefully to verse 22 this morning, uh, 15 through 22. And just as a reminder for us, again, what Paul is writing as he writes to these churches in Galatia and this region as he's come, he's preached to them and many of them embrace this truth of Christ who came and died and brings life. And, and, and what has happened is they have returned to a legal understanding of this acceptance before God and returning to adding on things that they could do in this respect, adding the law back into the truth of Christ and that they begin to, to add in things like circumcision as an act, and which the law did prescribe as a part of that. And they said this is necessary. And Paul is writing because he's concerned for them. As he looks at this and he realizes when they add anything back to Christ, what happens is you nullify the truth of the gospel. And there's this danger that is lurking around the corner within people individually as well as within the corporate body. And he's writing them to convince them of what the gospel is. The gospel that they learn and preach and is indeed, indeed the, the gospel of the whole of the scripture from beginning to end, from New Te Old Testament to New Testament. And here he continues his argument, if you will, towards them to help them get this. In verse 15, the word of the Lord. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God. So as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. 
but Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe in, who might be, who believe. Paul continues to kind of circle around this. And each time we kind of hit this, he's, he's got a different angle that he wants to bring. And indeed, as we look at this passage, the, it opens a little bit different than the very beginning of the section. You remember in verse 1, he says, you foolish Galatians. He wants to get their attention. And here we see he says, brothers, sisters, all of you who have embraced Christ, have been chosen by him. He speaks to them in terms of affection to, to realize that he cares for them and cares about them. He wants them to hear him. Later on, he will call them as little children. So this isn't just about an argument he wants to win. It's about something that he wants to see growing up in their lives that produces the kind of fruit that only God can bring in and through the gospel. He is perplexed, he continues to be, but he continues to preach to them with an understanding and a belief that they will accept this message. They will realize what they have done. He's concerned for their spiritual well-being, both individually and corporately here. And his concern, of course, is that by adding anything to Christ, what you're doing is undermining and nullifying the truth of that, the truth of what Christ has done in them. Real quick, as an overview from 1 to 14, he's, as he's argued to them to help them understand, to see what he's done. First of all, he says, the gospel that I preached to you did something in you. And as you look at that work that had been done, has been done in you, it needs to be a marker for you to validate the truth of it. First of all, he says, the spirit of, very, the spirit of God, the very presence of God is dwelling in you. How did that come to be? How did we come into this season, this period of time where God himself dwells in you? Was it something that you did or something that God has done? And then he says, look at your life. Look at the transformation. Look at the miracles that have taken place. How did that happen? Was that something that you accomplished, something that you earned? Or was that something that God has done upon you? He says, surely this is something that God, it's a work of the Spirit. It's something that he has done in and through his gospel. And that's what you need to see. And then he goes on to argue. And he says, look at Abraham. The gospel is seen, it's preached in the Old Testament. This isn't anything new I've told you. This is something that, that we can see all the way back in Abraham, that he was justified, that he was made right before God, that his sins were forgiven simply by faith in Christ and belief, that indeed he himself was made righteous before God before he himself was circumcised, that he didn't meet the requirements that you are imposing upon people. And he says that what legalism does by adding laws back into the gospel, what it does is that it puts barriers up between you and, and, and other people in the gospel. And it creates these lines and segments people. And the gospel is never intended to do that. So the barriers are not to be there. That's what legalism does. It also creates this differentiation within the body of Christ where there's com competition. This kind of raises up and there's a fragmentation that takes place as we try to compare ourselves to each other to find out who's better. We want to climb closer to, closer to God, but merely on the top of somebody else. He says that's what legalism does as we try to earn our keep, as we earn our place before God. And finally, legalism grows a kind of control that we want to have over God as if that were possible. And he says you don't need to control God. First, it's absolutely impossible. But secondly, you don't have to control the God who has bought you with a price, who has taken the curse upon himself. And so as he argues to them, he says, this is the gospel. Do not 
allow it to grow, to turn back into this form of which you would earn your own keep. And now as he continues to argue, to build his case, he wants them to see a couple things. Well, there's a couple themes that come into place here in Galatians 4, 15 through 22. The language shifts a little bit. Now what we see, the themes are promise and law. Promise and law. And there's two people that are associated with this, Abraham and Moses. And he wants to see them. He's going to use these two ideas, these two themes from the Old Testament, these two concepts which God has actually woven into the fabric of his history of what he's doing in, in salvation throughout history of promise and law. And he wants them to understand the right relationship to them. Because what legalism does, it, 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 it misses the point in the relationship that's there. And there's a construct, a framework that Paul had that's helpful for us. It's kind of behind the text. And if you think about it in terms of, of history, in terms of throughout the Old Testament, from there are these seasons in which God would operate in, under different kinds of patterns. And in one pattern, there's the, there's the promise. And the promise is, is rooted in this account of Abraham where God comes to Abraham and gives him a promise that he would bless him, that he would give him offspring, that he would give him a land, and it would be through that offspring there would be a blessing. So Abraham is brought into the picture, and he is the anchor for the promise. But it's more than just a promise he gives Abraham. There's an account in, Abraham, in, in Genesis 15 that tells us about the way God confirmed the promise with an oath, with a covenant. And the imagery there is very important to understand that God didn't just promise with his word, he promised by making a covenant. If you remember in that passage in 15, he, he says, this is how you will know that I will keep my promise to you for this offspring. And he says, and he gives them this picture, this picture, this, this uh, pattern that they would enact then is of two people would enter into a covenant a greater and a lesser. And what they would do is they'd take these animals and they would cut them in half and they would separate the animals. And the two parties that are entering into the covenant would walk in between these animals. And they would, they would demonstrate their commitment to that covenant. And essentially the picture of doing that is if I don't fulfill my end of the bargain here, so be it to me as it's done to these. And so in that image, in that, in that account in Genesis 15, what we have is God himself walks between the pieces. God himself says, I will take the curse if I don't fulfill. And so we see the anchor of, the, of this promise to Abraham is in God himself, that this promise to Abraham is an unconditional one. It's not conditioned on anyone else besides God, and it's promises blessing alone, and that God himself would take the curse. And so we have that era of which promises is figured there in, in Abraham. But then we have the season of law, and Paul sees this, and he connects it with Sinai, connects it with this intermediary of Moses who comes. You can read through Exodus, and you see as the law comes. And with it is a different kind of relating, a different thing that's taking place. It's not unconditional, it's conditional. It requires obedience. There's rules, there's stipulations that are a part of this relationship with God. And he says, if you obey, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will be cursed. And so the law is, is pictured here with conditional and obligations. It's there. So we have promise that's unconditional. It's rooted in God. We have, this, or we have promise that's rooted in God. We have the law that's rooted in what man would do in this relationship. And Paul says, how do these relate? How do we understand promise and how do we understand law? But then there's a third phase in God's plan. 
He goes through promise, and we see from Abraham to Sinai to Moses, and then we see that law seems to govern and to rule in some way and to have a, a kind of jurisdiction over Israel that's, that was real and it was, it was there, but it was provisional, it was temporary, because it was waiting for, it was moving towards, it was leading towards something else that the promise anticipated, and that was fulfillment that there would be one who would come that would fulfill the promise of Abraham. There would be one who would come who would complete and fulfill the law because no one else could. And so we have this three-part kind of framework of promise and law and then fulfillment. And fulfillment, of course, as Paul sees it here, is Christ himself as he comes, that Christ himself would come and absorb the curse of the law in and of himself and the language in it is this kind of anticipatory kind of language of waiting for it. Christ is going to come. He will fulfill this. And he is reflecting on this operation of God throughout history. He says, you got to see this. you got to understand how God has operated. And the question for them is, how do these relate now? We stand on the other side of Christ. Fulfillment has come. How do law and promise relate and in what order do they relate with one another? In light of Christ as he has come. Because what's true is that they had not understood it properly. And if they misunderstand it, it completely undermines the gospel. How do these three relate? And his argument for them is a right understanding of the gospel properly sees the relationship between promise, between law, and between the fulfillment of God in Christ that the three must hinge together. And to get one wrong, to put law over the promise is to misunderstand what God is doing. It nullifies all three. You see what had happened? Is that in their setting there, the, those who had followed the Jewish faith had come back in and said, yeah, there is a promise, but you need to understand that the law actually trumps that. Yeah, there was a promise, and the gospel is all good, but the law actually kind of supersedes that. And so... This promise of God is fine in all, but it's really only as a prelude to the law. That the promise of God is seen as kind of this prelude in that what would follow and what was most important they need to understand is the stipulations, the requirements that were placed upon them. But as you can tell, and as Paul writes clearly, that when you do that, it completely undermines the promise of God that he would do and accomplish his work for them. And as we look at this passage, there's a bunch in here much that we can't kind of work through, lots of questions that people we still have, but it's clear, I think, what Paul is saying about the gospel. Three different things I want to pull in and look at. First of all, he wants us to see the priority and the primacy of the promise over and against the law. He wants us to see that in God's plan, the law has not superseded the promise. That what's most important is to see that, and that God's plan all along is that he himself would do the lifting, as it were, in our salvation. He would do all the work, that he would take on his shoulders the responsibility. So the priority of the promise. Secondly, we want to see the, prep, the preparatory purpose of the law. What does the law do? Why do we, he asks the question, what is its purpose? Well, it's to prepare us. And what we find in that is that we have a need for someone, for something to reveal our need for the promise, to see our need for that. Otherwise, we're going to try to convince ourselves that we can do it. And then finally, we're going to look at the futility of finding life anywhere else. Quick qualification. As we look at law and promise here, lots that's written on this, but one thing we need to know that as Paul addresses law, this is one aspect of the law that he's addressing. 
He is not trying to undermine it. He is not trying to denigrate it. He's not trying to be completely negative. He's trying to put it in its right respective perspective with promise. There's much more that could be said and written about law as it relates to us as believers. In fact, later on in Galatians, he's going to call them to obey the law. But he's going to call them to obey the law, not as a basis of their salvation, but as a byproduct of it. And so, as we think about this, as we look at this, it's important, important to understand that as believers, the function of the law here is to prepare us for the promise that's there. Much more could be said on that. I'm going to go into that. But just know there's much more that could be said about the law. First of all, this passage 15 through 18 and the priority and the promise. If I could just put it simply... And again, all week long, what I'm having to do is say, what, what's, the, what's the simplest way Because for me to get this? Because the intricacies of his argument is, is difficult. There's all these different strands. Is that what Paul wants us to get, he wants them to get, is that the law trumps, or the promise trumps law. Okay? The promise is priority. It's, it's the, it takes primacy over the law in this case. And this is his argument. He says, to give you a human example, he says, in a man-made covenant, no one annuls it. Uh, once it's been ratified. Essentially, it's unchangeable. Even in a human nature, the way that we do our law, there's a point at which a will, as it's established, that it can't be changed. Certainly at the death of the person who's established that. It cannot be changed if it's a case in human affairs. Surely it's a case in divine affairs that this promise that God established to Abraham is unchangeable. It's irrevocable. Just like the laws that we would accept to a greater degree. So he wants them to see it's unchangeable, the covenant of God, the promise that he had established with Abraham, which is finding its fulfillment in Christ. And he goes on to bring Abraham into the story, into this question of, of promise, because he is the, the point at which the person which the promise is given to. Verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. What is he getting at there? What's the point? He is referring to a number of different places in the Genesis account where God in different ways, in different times, in different places would reiterate this promise that he would give. He had given to Abraham that it is to his offspring he would give. And the blessing that there would be a land, that there would be a people, there would be a seed, there would be an offspring of people that would come from him and that there would be this blessing that would come through this offspring. And what Paul wants to do He's reminding them, he's not, he's arguing, but it's probably a point that they already are not necessarily against, but he's reminding them that the, this promise is fulfilled in Christ because he says here, right, it's not unto your offspring who is Christ. He wants them to see this. And if you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter 17 is one of the, the points at which we see this promise that he makes to Abraham, one of the points at which he does this. And again, he's not so much arguing grammar as he, as he separates or parses plural and singular, offsprings and offspring. He's arguing theologically. He wants them to see the ultimate fulfillment. And we can look at this passage, 17.7 of Genesis. God says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you, between your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And of course, the, the promise here to the offspring, again, in view are, is of course people. 
of people that would come for this because they're going to they're gonna inhabit this land that God had promised to them. But it doesn't end there. And Paul wants them to see that this, this promise to the offspring isn't just to them, although it's seen temporarily in them, that the ultimate fulfillment of the promise of God to Abraham is seen ultimately in Christ. And so he wants to connect the dots for them from promise to Abraham fulfilled in Jesus It is still viable, it is still intact, and it's completed and fulfilled in Christ. And so Paul wants to show them and demonstrate to them that this blessing to Abraham, this promise is fulfilled, but not just fulfilled, it's unified in Christ. That the blessing to all the nations, that there's no distinction between people, because what did the law do? It brought distinctions to be made between people. And Paul says, the promise unifies in Christ. The promise says there are no distinctions for all those who are in Christ find themselves to be unified. At the very end of this chapter, he says, Jew and Gentile, Greek, male, female, slave, free are all to be unified in this work. And so we see that the promise is unchangeable. The promise unifies and fulfilled ultimately in Christ. But then he goes on to say that the promise preceded the law in verse 17. He says, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a promise previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance came by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. 430 years, is that significant? Well, it preceded. The promise preceded the law, the giving law. What's his point? Does it have something to do with 430 years? Probably not exactly. The point is that once the promise is given, if indeed law was to supersede that, what does that mean? What's the implications of of that? If indeed the law comes and annuls or does away with the promise. Well, this is what it sounds like, right? It sounds like what God has done has changed his mind. It sounds like God has actually decided and went against the promise that he had made to Abraham. And Paul says that's not the case. That is not true. The law that followed did not undermine. It did not annul the promise. The promise is still intact because the promise that is fulfilled in Christ came, that came to Abraham, came by a promise. It came not by something that they would do. It didn't come through the legal stipulations of the law. God did not break his promise. He did not break his covenant with Abraham. He had promised this. Now, what's the point for us? What do we get from this? Of course, in that day and age, what had happened is they returned to use of the law, depending on the law. And he says, no, don't do that. You depend on what God has done, not what you have done. To do that, you are somehow displaying, you're saying that God has went against the promise that he would accomplish his work for them. And whatever lie behind their kind of regression back into that, we can't be sure. But the one truth that Paul wants them to get, he says, this is the truth. The very core of the message of the gospel as we connect promise and fulfillment in Christ is that God himself said, I will be the one fully and completely responsible. And I will demonstrate that in my covenant to you and my fulfillment in Christ, that it will be about me and what I do and not about what you do. It will be because of, my, because of my promise and my covenant that his intentions all along in the scope of his redemptive plan was that the entire weight would fall upon him, upon his promise being accomplished in Christ. So what does this tell us? What do we do with this? Well, one, God didn't change his mind. 
There wasn't kind of a, a plan A and a plan B. Like it might look like you read through and he, you know, it's like God says, oh, let's try this. Let's try a promise and see if that works. And he says, okay, I promise you I'll do everything. And then you go, well, they, it still didn't work. And then you go, okay, well, let's, let's try law. Let's try some rules, right? You might try this in your home, right? You know, and, and you try rules and you go, wow, that didn't work. They, you know, I gave them rules, but more and more rules. And they created rules even of themselves and that didn't work. Let's try plan C. Let's try plan A, B prime. Okay, I'll send my son. And that's not what's at work. There's not different plans of God. There's one singular plan of God that we see in operation in different ways. We see through promise and through law. We see in Christ being the fulfilling one of that. And we see this beautiful picture of God's plan, his unfolding plan from Genesis to Revelation to save by promise, by what he would do and not what we would do, that he would accomplish that and reveals, communicates in these beautiful pictures, the narratives in real time and space that God has said it'll be about what I do. And so he, the gospel unifies these three, promise, law, and fulfillment perfectly in that. And so we see this picture and we understand it more purposefully. Secondly, what does it do? It provides this hope for us. I, mean, I read uh, in, our, in our worship time, this idea of, of the, the hope that we have as an anchor for our soul from Hebrews chapter 6. And the Hebrews, the author of Hebrews there says, it is this promise, two unchangeable things, the promise of God and the very covenant of God by which we have hope, that we're anchored in not what we do, but what he has done, that we see fulfilled in Christ. And so the priority of the promise is important. And Paul says, don't return to the law. Don't allow the law to subvert, to displace, to replace the promise that God has given, and that's what we live in. But of course, you have to ask the question which Paul asked next, then why the law? Okay, we have promise, then why do we have this period of time which the law ruled over Israel? This idea even that still exists, this, the law that is real within us, that it kind of has a work upon us, then what is its point? And he wants to speak to them. He wants them to understand the function of the law. And of course, this is a question that Paul himself would have had, right? As being one who had been committed to adherence to the law in the most perfect kind of way, he would have the same question as he saw that the connection with the promise, then what is the purpose of the law? Why does it exist? What on earth is the law all about? What function does it serve? And so he says, what is the point? And he answers the question with this. He says, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Simply this. What needed to take place is the law become a preparatory kind of action upon us. That it would open our eyes. It would help us to see the vital importance for God's promise. That we would be in desperate need of what only he could do to reveal to us our condition. We were blind to it. As you look at this passage, it doesn't help us as much. We're going to look at one other verse in, in, in Romans. It was added because of transgressions. What that means, it was added to increase it. It was added to bring knowledge. If you'll turn with me to Romans chapter 3, Romans 3 verse 20. Three verse 20. Different way of saying the same thing. It's more clear and we understand this a little more carefully as we look at this. Echoes the same, the same message. 320. Paul writes, 
For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That it's through law. What is the function of law? What is its purpose? It's to bring knowledge of sin. Now, what does that mean? It means that it defines it for us. It gives us kind of, it makes makes concrete what's abstract. It helps to bring it into picture to go, oh, that's sin. It places it before us as something that's real. Something that is right in front of us. It brings knowledge. It defines it for us. As a preacher said in this pulpit, pulpit, about 16 years ago, a guy named Bill Vogler said, they were not, these laws were not, the sins were not just weaknesses in us. They were not just wrong things by definition of our own conscience. They were not just wrong things by definition of society. The law came to make us conscious that these things were sins against a holy God. That the law comes and it reveals that indiscretions that we have, that things, failures that we have, isn't just accidental, it's not just arbitrary, it's not just abstract, it's something real, and it's primarily, first and foremost, a violation against the holy God and his law. It names it for us, and it places it in a real context of a real person, a real holiness that stands over and against us. And so it brings knowledge of sin, but not just that. Turn over in chapter 5, verse twenty. Paul goes on to write, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So it didn't just come to give knowledge, it actually came to increase the trespass. It actually added weight. We found that our condition was actually much worse than we realized, that our sin was much more grave than we realized, that God's holiness is much greater, and so we have this gap between our sin and the gravity of our sin and God himself and what the law does, its function is to reveal and to open our eyes to see it. Because left to ourselves, we will not see it, certainly in its gravity. When I was in sixth grade, I still have this memory etched in my mind. Me and my two brothers who were about the same age all got brand new hiking boots big old hiking boots had these big old soles on them and they were really cool I don't know why but we remember wearing them and, and loving them but one of the most interesting things about these hiking boots is that they would make marks on floors and why to a sixth grade boy that was interesting or intriguing I I'm not exactly sure but boy that was so much fun that we could make marks on floors with those and of course we didn't really think about it and one Sunday we're at church me and my two brothers with our hiking boots on and we happened to find this stretch of floor that had linoleum. And we started going, hey, this is great. And we began to make marks on the floor with our boots. And in one respect, we didn't even think about it, right? We're just making marks on the floor. How cool is that? That is so much fun. Come and join us. Bring your your souls and let's do this. And so we spent a period of time, I don't know how long, it was, I was kind of oblivious to it, making marks on this stretch of floor. And between the three of us, we did a pretty good job on that floor. We, we marked it up pretty good. It was pretty, pretty much covered with marks. Not even thinking about it, right? Well, there was an instance, and again, I can still see and remember this moment when my pastor's wife walked by the hallway. And, and she looked at us, and, and, you know, and we looked at her, and she asked one simple question. What are you doing? And of course... We looked at her. I, remember, I, still, I still remember looking down and then looking at her and going, oh my goodness, what are we doing? What is happening here? Why, why are we doing this? And it, what, what had happened there, right? When she showed up, 
All of a sudden, what I had done had been abstract and just fun, and all of a sudden, taken on a completely new turn. A new light was shed on what we were doing. We were not just putting black marks on a floor. We were defacing the very house of God, and to her, that's exactly what we were doing. I still remember just being stunned as I realized what I was doing and what I had done. Well, it took about two hours. Those marks were not indelible. We did get them off. They did come off. But we see that the picture of what the law does is it shows up in our lives and it says, what are you doing? And we look and we say, I have no idea. Why would I do that? That is a grave sin, not just a a mark on the floor being taken off. That is an indelible mark against the holiness of God. And the law says, this is true of you. The marks that are there. And it reveals and it's preparatory for our work because we see the, I can scrub all day long and I can't get them off. And so this law comes and it reveals to us what we have done, reveals our need of what alone God can do. And Paul writes to them and says, we need to see this is what the law does. It's because of transgression. It's to bring knowledge of this. It's to prepare our hearts to bring us to a point where we need somebody to step in and do that which we cannot do to provide forgiveness in our lives. And Paul says, be careful. If you you use the law in a kind of way that it's not designed to function, you will do more harm than good. If you misunderstand the use of the law, if you use it to actually try to bring, bring life when it can't, it will do more harm than good. It will actually bring death. And so to them, he says, as you return to the law, that's exactly what's going to happen. It's going to fragment. It's going to bring this, this, this division within you. It's going to bring harm upon you. It's not going to bring good. It cannot save you. It was never intended to do that. It is not a life-saving device. It is only to reveal the true condition in which we find ourselves. And for a non-believer, they open their eyes. They see that by God's grace, and it reveals the need of the promise. For the believers, we walk in it daily. We look at God's law and recognize, I can't do this. I can't maintain this on my own. And it points us back to the promise of God. I will accomplish this on your behalf. Even in your fallen and sinful life, I, because I have promised, my name is staked on what I will do and accomplish in your life. We lift our, we, we place ourselves again under his mercy and find that what we can't do, he has done. And so Paul, as he writes to them, he says, you need to see the priority of the promise over against the law. It's something that God has promised to do and that brings incredible hope for us. He says the the law, on the other hand, prepares the heart of the unbeliever. The law, on the other hand, for the believer, reminds us this ongoing need to receive and to take what he has offered and provided for us. But finally, ask another question as he's given the function. By the way, uh, verse, the last half of verse 19 and 20, um, not many preachers actually address. <laughs> it's one of those passages you figure out. It, it basically, his point is the, the promise is better than the law. So I'm going to bypass that. Bill didn't address it when he preached it 16 years ago. Uh, others have not as well. Verse 21, he asks another question that brings in another aspect of, of our condition and what the law does. Another issue of the relationship of law and promise. He asks this, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Is the law contrary? Is the, are the promises of God and the laws of God at odds with one another? Do they fight against each other? Do they compete for the same operation against each other? And Paul says, no, by no means, certainly not, this is not true. 
Why is it not true? He says, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be indeed by the law. What's he say? The law can't do what the promise can do. They don't fight because the law is not even capable of bringing life. The law can't bring righteousness. Only God's promise, only the covenant that he had made could actually do that. They are not competing approaches to God. They were two that accompany each other in a necessary way. The promise must come first and then law to prepare us, understand promise. And they work together in that respect. They are not at odds with one another. And only in the gospel do they work together in this way. Do we understand this? But then he goes on to verse 22. And this is an intriguing verse. It's been for me for quite some time. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But the scripture, and he shifts things just a little bit. What I want us to see here, he's talking about law and promise. And he's not moving from that. He's talking about the promise that brings salvation that God would bring and enact. But he broadens the effects of God's work upon us. And he broadens the condition of humanity just a little bit in this verse. Because he says the scripture... Similar way back in verse 8, there's this kind of personified sense of the, the scripture. This is God himself is doing something in creation. The, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. It creates and dis displays this predicament, this condition, the scope of our condition. Even in a broader way, we've already learned that we've been cursed and Christ has taken that curse. Even in a, in a more profound, a breadth of it is, is the sense here. And I'll explain what I mean in just a moment. The scripture that God himself has imprisoned. Imprisoned has a great picture for us. And, and again, it captures a variety of images. But if you think about it, it means to shut up or to hem in on all sides. There's no escape. Uh, to imprison is certainly a part of it. To be placed in a cell where you can't get out. And the, the scripture here is kind of the jail master that, that keeps you locked into. And the prison there is this sin, this violation of God. It's a fallenness of the world. But there's another picture, and the picture kind of comes originally out of this, this image of a fish that's caught in a net. That we're told that the scripture imprisons all things. That, that it's like that fish in the net. He can swim as hard and fast and as far, but he can't get anywhere. That there's an imprisoning going on so that any effort that he would bring is a futile effort to escape. And escape what? Escape sin, of course. Can't do anything with that. But Paul uses this unique word. And he says everything, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Now, that does mean all people, by the way, but it also means all of creation, that everything, that every aspect of our experience in the world in which we live has been created, ordained by God to do something in us, to drive us to Christ. That our sin drives us to Christ. The sin in the world drives us to Christ. The fallenness in the world drives us ultimately to Christ. Paul writes about this in Romans 8, a picture of this. I'll read this for us. In 8, 19 through 21, he says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom and the glory of the children of God. What Paul says there, is that there's something that's real about a fallen world. There's a futility that's hardwired into it. That futility is seen in the ways that we try to 
make ourselves acceptable before God because that's a futile effort. It's also seen in every other aspect of the world and the life around us. And the law functions and one of these, the ways that the law functions, which is the, it's a true aspect of all of creation, is that it reveals the futility of finding life apart from God himself. That there's no way to do that. One of the phrases I came across this week that caught me is that this work of the law is a bondage to a salutary despair. That this work is a bondage to a salutary, a life-giving, I had to look up that word, by the way, a life-giving, a restorative despair. As we look around the world, as those who would try to find life apart from Christ, that they find a futility that's there. And God, what he has done, has, has hardwired a futility into the universe and though we're prone to look for life outside of Christ in a thousand different places, that he has saw fit to hem us in. To say there's only one escape. There's only one way out of this jail. There's only one way out of this net. I have created a world. I have ordained a world that's fallen, that's filled with markers everywhere and signposts that tell us and remind us that there's got to be another way. That he has hardwired a futility into our lives, the creation around us so that we'd be led to find the promise fulfilled in Christ for non-believers to, to try to find the way by other aspects of trying to find life outside of Christ, either by their good works or, or not so good works. C.S. Lewis writes about his own conversion in Surprised by Joy, and he says this that reflects the same picture. C.S. Lewis came to the point in his life where he realized as an atheist, really a kind of eventually made his, his way to be uh, kind of some sort of uh, a deist, but that, that his own philosophy of life required nothing of him, and that astounded him, didn't require anything of him, and he comes to the point where he says, I got to do something, I got to try something. He says, an attempt at complete virtue must be made. He says, really, a young atheist cannot guard his faith too, faith too carefully. Dangers lie and wait for him on every side. You must not do, you must not even try to do the will of the Father unless you're prepared to know the doctrine. All my acts, desires, and thoughts were to be brought into harmony with the universal spirit, kind of his concept of God. For the first time, I examined myself with a seriously practical purpose, and there I found what appalled me, a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. Of course, I could do nothing. I could not last one hour. For the one who seriously says, okay, I'm going to be good, you realize that's a futile effort. The one who says, I'm going to find life somewhere else, it's a futile effort. There's nowhere else to go to find life. And God says, yes, I'm going to use that to bring people to me, to point towards Christ. For believers even, in our own lives, we are prone to wander. We're prone to find life outside of Christ. And God himself says, no, there will be no other life outside of me. And so I will operate and work in your life in such a way, even if you try to find life in other places, I'm going to reveal the despair. I'm going to reveal the futility of finding life there in other places. And Hosea, God says, and if you know the, the story of Hosea, where the, the wayward wife is a picture of wayward Israel, and God says to Israel, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. 
Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better then than now. And God promises for us in those ways that we try to find life outside of him. He goes, nope, I'm going to put this hedge up. You will not find life there. I'm going to do this in such a way to show you the futility of finding life apart from me so that I will point you back towards me. As we think about this picture of the law and showing or displaying the futility of, of life, there's one more aspect of this. I'm going to close with this. As we think about it, there's, for the non-believer, it shows the futility. For the believer who's seeking rebelliously to, to get out from underneath or to find life outside of Christ, he brings us back in. He herds us back in in this net. But the fact that this futility is hardwired into the world around us should send us signals moment by moment, day by day, even in those times where we're not being rebellious of the reality that life is found in one place. That around us, futility is everywhere. That there's a sense and that's to be used as a marker to point us towards the place that real meaning is to be found that day after day we see in profound and trivial ways that sadness and in loneliness and pain and suffering and discontent and disappointment that's there. When grass won't grow but weeds will. When relationships are hard and difficult. When cars break down and cell phones don't work and technology disappoints us. When sermons are hard to write when the pages of a calendar continue to flip, everything around us points us in a direction. Everything around us says and screams this truth. There's a futility hardwired there, and it, it creates, it's a marker for us to look up on every side we find ourselves, but not caught in a trap, caught in this beautiful place where God says, look up. Look and see where real life and meaning is found. Look to me and trust in me and what I have done. Don't look to these things. These are good things and I'll give them to you and I'll bring some level of meaning to them, but they cannot be ultimate. They will not be ultimate. And I'll make sure that you know that. And so as we live in and through this life, we bump into them. And we say, oh yeah, there's another reminder. There's one place, one person to trust, one promise to look to. This thing will only disappoint. This Thing that I'm depending on will only find itself not to be sufficient. And so when we do that, we repent of the sin that we go after. As we're surprised at this, we say, Lord, would you remind me again of where life is really found? And Paul says to them, it's rooted in this promise. He says the hope is ultimately found in what God has promised that he will do. Then he says there's a preparatory work of the law, and this work of the law is to reveal our sin but at the same time reveals the futility of trying to find life outside of anything else that's there. And the beauty is we look back to the gospel, we look back to what he has done. It's there that we'll find truly the life he's made us to have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this truth that we rest in, that becomes that anchor for our soul. As the various ways we try to to, to find that, you have promised 
committed yourself to us, to him as sin, and point us back towards Christ. Would you do that today in each one of our lives for those of us who don't know you? Would it point us towards you again, those of us who do, who are seeking to find life in rebellious ways? Would you convict and remind us of the futility of that? And for those of us who are living face to face with the hard, fallen reality of the world around us, would you enable us to see it as that signpost pointing us towards you? Cause us to be able to trust and receive from you, Father. Needs in our congregation are many. I pray for her in Canistra at the death of her grandmother that you would comfort her, point her towards you, pray for many who are sick that with cancer, with other ailments. I pray for Nathan Slater um, as he continues to deal with uh, these um, internal issues, gastro-internal issues. Father, be with Todd Cook as well as he cares for his dad and many others as we find ourselves in these situations. Help us to trust you that this despair would lead to the life-giving hope in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.